most of you guys are familiar with Brian. We bring him in every year. He does a conference down in Kansas City, so it's uh, just a hop, skip, and a jump to get up here. So it's always a pleasure for me to bring him in. As I said, he's a good friend, and, and uh, his ministry means a lot to me. He gets to travel all over the country teaching on apologetics and science and the Bible and whatnot. So uh, I don't want to take any more of his time without further ado. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Young. Well, like I said, uh, my pleasure to be here, so thank you for having me. I should be applauding you to put up with me is what I should be doing. But anyway, we are going to talk about uh, which priest are you today. Um, David Wilkerson years ago kind of talked about this type of thing. And uh, it's been on my mind lately simply because of this. I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting frustrated with compromise in the church. And uh, I know God is in control, but... Um, Everywhere I go, everywhere I turn, I'm just constantly seeing uh, we're being bombarded uh, with deceptions, lies, and uh, half-truths, which, by the way, are lies. Um, and I just thought, you know, we need to be challenged to not only commit our children to God, but to commit ourselves to God. And so we're going to just challenge you a little bit today to think about which priest are you? Who are you serving? What's your goal in life? And so let's pray and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would give me the words today that need to be said. That I would simply be um, a servant for you today, a mouthpiece for your word. And that you would challenge us. That these words wouldn't just go into our minds, but that they would set deep into our hearts, our spirits. That they would change us. That we would be renewed. That we would no longer live in the flesh to seek earthly pleasures. But that, that we would seek to, to serve you and be willing to surrender all. To serve, to love, and to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this uh, presentation here is really going to, it kind of kicks off here in Ezekiel chapter 22, because in Ezekiel, it talks about the priests. And I want you to know that just because somebody's a pastor, that somebody's a priest, it doesn't mean that they're holy. It doesn't mean that what they say is truth. There are a lot of false prophets. You see, her priests have done violence to my law, God said. They have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Just because you are a priest doesn't mean you're obeying God, doesn't mean that you are bringing glory to God. Because here we see that there were a number of priests that were serving God. They were on the outside doing what they were supposed to be doing, but on the inside they weren't making any difference between the clean and the unclean, the common and the holy. They weren't taking a day to, to, to give to God. They were profaning Him because, well, too busy I take to take a Sabbath, I guess. Whatever the case might have been. You know, even in the New Testament we see uh, a warning about these false prophets, false priests, you might say. There were also false prophets among the people, just as there were false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who, brought, who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways. Boy, we see that happening. You see just one false leader, and all of a sudden you've got a whole swarm of people following after him, Right? Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. 2 Timothy 3, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. You see, there are men who can always be learning. And it sounds biblical, it sounds scriptural, it sounds good and godly. They're never able to acknowledge truth. Never able to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Jesus as King. Jesus as authority. 
There's a lot of people in the church today who will refuse to admit that the Word of God is an authority, that the Word of God is truth. They have to add in to the Word of God. They do all of those things. Today, I want you to understand that when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about you because you are a priest. If you're a Christian, you're a priest. That's what the Bible says. Okay, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. You see, because of Christ Jesus, he has made you a priest. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom priest to his God. What's a priest? It was someone who was anointed, chosen by God to serve him, to reflect him to the people. That's who you are. You are chosen by God. You are to serve God. You are to reflect God to the world. You are a priest, and you just as they were made holy by God, have been made holy by Jesus Christ. You see, I don't get frustrated with the world, those people who are drug addicts and, and alcoholics and prostitutes. They don't frustrate me. Because, you see, God expects the unholy and the ungodly to behave in ungodly and unholy ways. But He expects you the church, to be different. The word holy, it, uh, kodesh, it, it simply means to be separate, to be holy. That is what you are. He expects you to be different. Well, the purpose of the temple, you know, I never caught this. Do you know that one of the purposes of the temple that God built was to bring shame to those who were on the outside? Yeah, I never picked up on that, but look at what it says here. It's right in Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 43. It says this, As for you, son of man, describe the house of the Lord, or the house of, to the house of Israel, the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Look at that. Describe the temple to the house of Israel so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities or sins, you might say. Now keep in mind, what did I just say you were? You were priests, but you know what else it said here? That you were priests being built up as a spiritual house, a temple. You are the temple of God right now. The Spirit lives in you. If the temple was to bring shame to the people of Israel for their sins, what are you supposed to do? You know, isn't it interesting that when people live godly lives, we make people uncomfortable, don't we? Yeah. I mean, anybody who lives a very godly life can tell you that they make people uncomfortable. People are always saying, oh, you're legalistic, and oh, you think you're holier than thou, oh, you think you're so pious, right? You know what? That's because the temple of God, one of the purposes was to make people ashamed of their sins. And the reason they're uncomfortable is because the holiness of God makes the unholy uncomfortable. I'll admit, even as someone who loves the Lord, not perfect, but someone who loves the Lord, I've met some people who live some very godly lives that even make me uncomfortable. And when I stop to think about it, it's because, you know what? They're doing a better job at something than I am. They're doing a better job at training their children. They're doing a better job of, of keeping things away from their kids or whatever the case might be. And I have to remind myself, thank you, Lord, that you are allowing their temple, you are allowing them to make me feel ashamed of the lack of something in my own life. It's okay. But we have to be careful not to judge others for that. Because that's one of the purposes of the temple. It says, if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple. Its arrangements, its exits, entrances, the whole design. And make known to them as well all its statutes, its whole design, 
and all its laws and write it down. So now it goes on to say, okay, if they are ashamed of their sins, and in other words, rather than accusing you, oh, you're so pious, but rather than saying, wow, I need to change my life. If they do that, God then says, now make known to them its whole design, its entrance, its, its exits, all of it. In other words, he's going to bless you when you acknowledge your sins. And what you see as this temple, you're going to get to see the beauty of it. You know, it's kind of like the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It was kind of bland. Not very cool, really, to be honest with you, looking on the outside. To see the beauty, you had to go in. To see the beauty, you had to be washed. You had to be holy. You had to be a priest. Then, after you had confessed your sins and all of that, you got to go in and you got to see the beauty. And I see that's kind of what this is saying here in Ezekiel 43. Now, I want you to understand the context here. This is the new temple. Ezekiel 40 through 48 talks about this new temple. And I'll admit, I don't understand that completely. Okay? But there seems to be a future thing going on here, too. All right? Well, Ezekiel 44, just another chapter later, it says this. And this is where we're going to kind of start to do some, some uh, dissecting, you might say, of Scripture. The Levites who went far from me, going astray from me, after their idols when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary. Having oversight at the gate of the temple, ministering in the temple, they shall slaughter the burnt offerings, sacrifice for the people. They shall stand before the people to minister to them. Now, what I want you to see so far is this. These are priests, but they are priests who were not walking in God's ways right? They have gone astray. Did they still serve God? Yes, they did. Where did they serve? Well, on the outside, ministering to the people, standing before the people. Okay? It goes on. They shall slaughter, or, I'm sorry, I'm back up here, or move forward, I should say. Because they ministered to them before their idols, became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, Therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, that they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me. They're not going to be in God's presence. They will be in the presence of the people. They'll serve God, but not in God's presence. It goes on. They shall not come near me to serve me as priest, nor come near any of the holy things and the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame the abominations that they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple to do all its service, all that's to be done in it. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, now keep in mind, these were Levites too. There's two types of Levitical priests. The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me. Not just the people but in God's presence. There are priests that serve God and they serve the people, but they're not allowed to come into the Holy of Holies. They're not allowed to be in the presence of God. You know anybody like that? Priests who just don't understand the presence of God? They serve the people, but they don't understand the presence of God. 1 Samuel 3 is where we see this start to unfold. We're going to back up to explain what I just said to you here. You remember a guy named Samuel? He was a, uh, or um, first of all, Eli. He was a priest. He was the one that Hannah had dedicated to the Lord. He brought it to Eli because Eli was the high priest at that time. Well, it says this in 1 Samuel 3, I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever, Eli's house, for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. This is serious stuff. You see, God came to Samuel when he, after he had been dedicated to the Lord, given over to God, Samuel, you know the story. He was laying in bed, and he hears, you know, Samuel. And he says, oh, runs back into Eli's tent. What? He says, I didn't call you. He goes back, Samuel. He comes back, Eli, what do you want? 
says, I didn't call you. And finally, Eli realizes, oh, the God is trying to call or talk to Samuel. He says, next time, go say, speak, for your servant is listening. So he goes back, and all of a sudden, God calls Samuel, and Samuel says, all right, Lord, here I am, speak. And this is what God tells Samuel. You go back and tell that priest, Eli, that because he considered his sons more holy than me, I'm going to take the priesthood out of his hands. Because you see, his sons were, well, they were sleeping with women at the tent of the, the temple, the tabernacle. Yeah, and so what did Eli do? He went and said, guys, this is wrong. Don't do it. And you think, good job, Eli. Way to be a father. So why is God so upset? Eli told him to stop. Eli said, don't do it. That's all he did. I have a homosexual brother. And you know something? For years, I had a relationship with him because uh, he was a practicing homosexual. And I'd say, I love you, Tom. I love you. I don't agree with your lifestyle, but I love you. I'd welcome him into my home. I'd go places with him. There was no difference in our lives outside of I said, don't do this. I don't agree. But did I ever take a stand? To stand in the gap? Mm -mm. I just loved him, kept the communication lines open. It was this verse that convicted me because, you know, all the pastors, they would tell me that, well, you know, you got to keep the communication lines open. You couldn't show me any scripture that said that. But what I see is this. I was being just like Eli. Because even though I disagreed with my brother's lifestyle, I tolerated it. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my brother. But I had, I had to, long story short, excommunicate my brother. Now, I tell him I love him all the time. But I said, we're not going to chum around. I'm not going to pretend like everything's okay and I just disagree. Okay, you're not welcome in my home, but I love you. Now, there's some steps here. I'm, this is a different presentation. I want you to understand that he, I, there comes a point. You don't do this right away, all right? He had refused to listen. Uh, you know, we had talked, this, is, this was a whole process that went along. But when he refused to listen anymore, there came a point when it was time to say no. I will not tolerate this anymore. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. But anyway, what happens here is this. Eli, it's interesting to me because, you know, it says that he was sitting in the temple. Eli sat in the temple. Do you know there wasn't a chair in the temple? The Bible also tells us he was a fat man. Now, nothing is in the Bible without a reason. Why did the Bible feel a need to tell us that? Because that is reflecting upon the character of Eli. Okay? Eli lacked self-control. Eli liked earthly pleasures. Eli, sitting, liked his comfort. But it was in his place of comfort as he sat that became his place of death, as you will see. His place of comfort became his place of death. The Bible tells us and warns us, really, in Proverbs chapter 21, He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. I'll tell you what, this should be the, the motto of America. And I am just as guilty as any of you here. Because I like pleasure. But I have to remind myself all the time, I'm not here on earth for pleasure. I'm here for a purpose. And that purpose is to give the word of God 
to be a light and to share the gospel with others. That's why God put me here. Well, Eli was not a father. And just as we talked about in this dedication here this morning, I want you to understand that being a father isn't just because you have kids. Just about anybody can have kids. Being a father is hard. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. You think, what is he saying here? You have, you know, though you have countless guides, you don't have many fathers. What's the difference? I'll tell you the difference. A father is willing to say no and to put his foot down, to do what's hard to do, to give tough love. A father is willing to deal with the hot topics, the tough topics in life. A guide, they're just encouraging. They'll encourage. They're your best friend. We see a lot of parents who are their children's best friend. And we see usually how that turns out. Oh, maybe they've got this great, oh, and you go, oh, they've got such a great relationship with each other, right? And then the daughters are off getting pregnant out of wedlock and all of these things. But, oh, they have such a great relationship. You see, there's a difference between a guardian and a father. A father will discipline his children, just as God loves us and disciplines us. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 35 and 36. God is telling Samuel this about Eli again. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, unlike Eli, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. In other words, they're going to be in my presence. Not just the presence of the people like Eli was, but in my presence. Just like Ezekiel 43 told us. So, he's saying, the priesthood of Eli is going to end, but I am going to raise up another. Another priesthood do you know that in the time of David, at this time, there was only one high priest, Eli. But somehow along the line, and we don't get all the details in Scripture, but when you go to the time of David, we see there are two high priests. Okay? Do you remember when David was fleeing from Absalom? Absalom was David's son. Now, uh, David wasn't always the best father either, by the way. Okay? He was a man, he typifies Christ, but he wasn't Christ. Well, anyway, Absalom was uh, uh, his son, and Absalom became evil and tried to take the kingdom away from his father. So much so, I mean, he was almost successful at it, so that David had to flee from Jerusalem, and he did. When he did, though, two priests went with David. Look what it says here. All the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. This is when he's, David's running away. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also, with all the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. And it goes on. Now it says, see, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. What I want you to see is you've got two priests working side by side. Both Levitical priests, just like Ezekiel 43 said, there would be Levitical priests that served before the people and those that served before me. Okay? Here we have those two. Zadok is a valiant warrior. He was high priest, and the Bible tells us he's in the line of Samuel. Abiathar was in the line of Eli. So, 
the, going all the way back to that same story, we're seeing the same lines. From One comes from Samuel, one comes from Eli. So God's taking one of these lines out, lifting up another, as you're going to see here, just as that prophecy he gave to Samuel is going to be fulfilled here in the time of David. In 1 Kings 1, we see that a second time happens. First of all, with Absalom. I, I didn't give you the whole story. I'm kind of assuming you understand this story because you read your Bible because you are priests. That Absalom was put down and killed and David comes back with both those priests. It isn't long later, and David has another son named Adonijah. And Adonijah, David never really told him not to do this or that. He wasn't a father. So Adonijah tries to take over the kingdom because, you see, Solomon is supposed to be king, and David is getting really old. And so Adonijah says, well, I'm just going to kind of steal it away from Solomon. Well, here's what happens. Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done this and that? So he was a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. Handsome, worldly, in some sense. It's not his fault that he's handsome, but it seemed like he exploited this. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men, were not with Adonijah. So now we see these two priests, but one decides to continue to follow the Lord's anointed. The other, the up-and-coming rock star. You see, Adonijah, he was culturally relevant. He was handsome. He was uh, dynamic. He would take his chariots and he would meet people at the gates and say, oh, if only I was king. And he'd do all these kinds of things. He, he, was, he was the rock star to the people. He had the popularity contest won over Solomon. That self-exalting, lazy spirit of Eli was still around. It was right there in Adonijah. Because, see, Adonijah chose to be culturally relevant. Because Adonijah was thinking, I could be out of a job. So he decided to follow what the world had to offer rather than be faithful to God and his anointed. Adonijah wanted to build his own thing up. Adonijah wanted his own platform. So did Abiathar. Abiathar wanted his own platform. He didn't want to be a servant to God and let somebody else get glory. He wanted to have the platform himself. So look what happens here in 1 Kings chapter 1. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And it goes on here. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah son of Jehoiada, and all the Carathites and Pelethites went down to the Solomon to ride on the king's, uh, and had Solomon ride on King David's mule, and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of the oil, and anointed Solomon. So again, we're just seeing what's going on. God intervened. David finds out about Adonijah's revolt. And David says, all right, we need to step up into action. And the people that followed David, even though David was old, 
could hardly see anything anymore. He was getting decrepit. We see Zadok said, it doesn't matter what the culture thinks of you. It doesn't matter that you're no longer culturally relevant. I stand with you. I was talking with Chris here this weekend. I'm sad to say, you know, as a, a creationist, that's what I do most of the time is speak on creation. You know what I've seen the last five years? We're losing. It's not just slight. We're losing. Now, I don't want to say we're losing the war. I know who wins. But I'm telling you this. The whole idea... You see, creation is no longer culturally relevant. The world is out there filled with Adonijah saying, oh, you can't believe that. You know, science is saying this. I think last time I was here, I talked about that. It's amazing to me how many Christians are out there saying, you can't believe the earth is young. Science has proven that wrong. But nobody's out there saying, you can't believe Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. That's scientifically impossible. You can't tell me Jesus walked on water. You can't do that. It's scientifically impossible. You can't tell me Jesus took a man's ear, took it off of the ground, stuck it back on his head without surgery. Science proves that wrong. Nobody's saying that. The church is all, oh yes, Jesus can do miracles, but he can't create. Why is it? Because you see, our culture has allowed interpretations of science, not science, interpretations of science, we'll call it evolution, to interpret the Old Testament. But they won't allow that to interpret the New Testament yet. I got news for you guys. First of all, science doesn't go against a young earth. Okay? Every field of science can support that. Second of all, my God can do things that science cannot explain. If you're going to try and make God simply culturally relevant, he's a small God. We need to be priests of Zadok, not priests of Abiathar that seek the culturally relevant leader, the culturally relevant trending uh, new theory or whatever that's out there. I choose to stick with God's anointed. The Messiah. You know that's what Messiah means? Christ means anointed. Christ is the anointed one. He is the word of God. And I choose to take that word of God and that is what I will stand on until the day I die. And I don't care what culture comes up with to try and tell me it's wrong or it's misinterpreted, because you see, you can't, let it be, you can't be misinterpreted if you let Scripture interpret Scripture. The only way to have different interpretations is to let science interpret the Scripture, let your experience interpret the Scripture, let you know, your opinions, your desires, your fleshly desires interpret the Scriptures. It's the only way to make it that way. So what are you going to do? You see, David is a Christ figure. Zadok is a picture of who we are to be as well. Are you going to follow the culturally relevant one or the anointed one? Even though in our society God is creator and even Jesus as Savior has become kind of old and outdated and everybody's already heard that stuff and we want something new and upcoming, are you going to continue to follow him? Well, Solomon becomes king. What happens? Solomon goes to Abiathar the priest and says, you go to Anatho to your estate, for you deserve death. 
says, but I will not at this time put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, because you shared in all my father's afflictions. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. What we read there in Samuel is finally fulfilled years and years later in the time of David. See, I think when we read the story of David, we are so focused on the kingship of David and his father, and just the, the story, that we forget that there's something, there's, a, there's something else that's being taught here, and that's the priesthood. This is the key of why that story is being told. Not that David had to run away. Not that he had some bad kids but that there's a change in the priesthood. We spend so much time, I think, looking at the kingship rather than the priesthood. Sometimes we spend so much time looking at what Pastor Chris is doing wrong, because there's a lot to choose from, I'm sure. Right? We spend so much time at looking what the kingship is doing wrong, when we should be looking at the priesthood. What are we not doing? Because I got news for you. Our model of church today, while I don't think there's anything wrong with it, isn't what it used to be. Pastor Chris isn't supposed to be the one that's doing all the work. Actually, it's the priests <laughs> that were to be doing the work. Solomon didn't put Abiathar to death, even though he deserved it. But you know what that means? That spirit was allowed to live. And it lives on today. That spirit of Eli, the spirit of Abiathar, goes on. You remember what happened to Eli? Eli died. His place of comfort became his place of death. Because the Israelites go off to war, they come back, and this guy that comes into town says, your sons are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he hears that the ark of God has been captured, not when he hears that his sons are dead, but when he hears that the ark of God had been captured, he tips over in his chair, and because he was a fat man, he broke his neck and died. His place of comfort became his place of death. Guys, that's America. Our place of comfort is becoming our place of death. We're no longer worried about the Lord's anointed. We're worried about the new, up-and-coming, cultural, relevant teaching the culturally relevant uh, leaders and pastors. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. No, you follow Christ, the Lord's anointed. That's what we are to do. Ezekiel 44 says, The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, just reminding you here, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, he says, they shall come near to me to minister to me. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. It's not culturally relevant to talk about what's right and wrong today because there's moral relativism today. Everybody's truth matters. No, I'm sorry. The very fact that there's a truth means there is a lie. The very fact that you have an X and a Y chromosome tells you you cannot be who you want to be or think you are. You are a man, you are a woman, period. You can't be a science denier, I thought. I'm sorry, if you're a man, you're a man. I don't care what you do for surgeries. I don't care what you think in your mind. I don't care what clothes you wear. You are who you are, the way God made you. 
See, I'm going to be a father. I'm not going to be a guardian. I'm going to make a clear distinction between right and wrong. Ezekiel 40, he said to me, this chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. The chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Levi may come near to the Lord to minister to him. You see, these are the priests that have a platform for God, not a platform to become popular. You know, I've heard Chris say many times, if he wanted to build a church, he could build a mega church. I believe he could. All you got to do is be culturally relevant. Don't be a father for sure. Just be a guardian. We just got to, you know, hold hands and sing kumbaya. Build a platform for yourself. Give the people what they want, not what they need. But then there are those who want the presence of God. Who are willing to say, you know what, I don't care if I only have 100 people in my church. Because this is God's church. And there are people like Jen Hatmaker. Has some good books. Serving the people. A priest before the Lord. Comes out. Homosexuality, it's okay. Nicole Nordman, same kind of thing. Andy Stanley, more of the middle of the road kind of guy. Okay, son of Charles Stanley. Pat Robertson. Okay, not a father. Not, you see, he's not culturally relevant. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this man isn't a believer. I believe he's a priest, a Levitical priest. But I don't believe that he's a priest of Zadok. Look what he says. The truth is, you have to be deaf, dumb, and blind to think that this earth that we live in only has 6,000 years of existence. It just doesn't. I'm sorry. You don't need to hear any more nonsense. He doesn't bring scripture once. Matter of fact, how is scripture interpreted? Not by scripture, but by science. Well, and not even by science, by evolutionary interpretations of science. You gotta believe it's millions of years. You got way down in that oil in the Jurassic period. Yeah, you know what caused all those layers? Noah's flood, not millions of years. You know where that oil probably came from? Noah's flood. Not millions of years. You see, what a compromise. It is a compromise. John Piper, another very godly man. I like a lot of Piper stuff. Separating out water, earth, and then when it's all set and prepared, he creates and puts man there. And so that, that has the advantage of saying that the earth is Historical person 
So you have an advantage here. Whatever science says it is. I mean, this way, you know, the earth can be billions of years old. As long as Adam and Eve were real people who fell into sin. Then whatever science is, science can be science and it can show the earth. No. Science doesn't interpret my Bible, even for the age of the earth. Okay, now again, I'm not saying he's an ungodly man. I, I believe John Piper's a Christian. I believe I'm going to be in heaven with John Piper. What I'm saying is, is there is a spirit of compromise, a spirit to be culturally relevant and be accepted by the culture. And so we can't be a father that will address hot topics, say no to homosexuality, to say no to pornography and abortion. We don't want to talk about pro-life because there may be people in our church that have had abortions. It's murder. But Jesus loves you and forgives you. David was a murderer. But it doesn't mean I'm not going to say you murdered your child. As much as it hurts, as much as it breaks our heart, we find hope and joy in the forgiveness and grace and restoration of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to be a father who will deal with your issues rather than sweep them under the rug so you never deal with the issue. Andy Stanley, like I said, more of the middle of the road kind of guy here again. The foundation of our faith is not the foundation of our faith is not the infallibility of the Bible. The foundation of our faith is something that happens specifically. So the issue is always who is Jesus. If we really believe that God is the creator of the universe, that all time, space, and matter, all time, space, and matter were created by God, and we take seriously what science has told us, that it all Mine can. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is problematic for adults. And here's why. Because the implication is the Bible is the reason we believe. The Bible is the reason we believe. This is the college where the, the Bible says that that settles it. And then a professor got up and says, well, there's problems with the Bible. And they begin to talk about things that are maybe aren't true or historically or, you know, verifiable. And your smart son or daughter that you spent thousands and thousands of dollars to get them educated come home and suddenly they're smarter than you. They already thought they were smarter than you, but now they have a professor saying, hey, you really are smarter than your Sunday school teacher and your parents. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, here's the problem. It is all or nothing conversation. You know, somebody with all this information, you know, comes to the, the Apostle Peter. Let's say the Apostle Peter and says, Peter. Hey, before you get all geeked out on this following Jesus thing, do you realize there's no evidence for a worldwide flood? Hey, and Peter, before you get all crazy about the Jesus thing, do you know that there's no archaeological evidence for the Exodus? Hey, you, hey Paul, before you get all going, Peter, before you go crazy about the Jesus thing, do you realize, okay, the earth is more than 6,000 years old, that whole genealogy of Genesis? Peter would have looked at you like, I'm not really sure what you're talking about, but, but I followed a man for three years. Who spoke like no other man spoke. He was arrested and crucified, and we thought, game over, because he said too much to be a good teacher. He claimed too much about himself to be a good teacher. Game over. We're all in hiding. A bunch of women come battling that the tomb is empty, the tomb is empty. I looked into an empty tomb, and do you know what I concluded? Somebody stole the body. And a few days later, I had breakfast with my risen friends on the beach. So I'm not sure about 6,000-year-old earth. I'm not sure about archaeological evidence. I'm not sure about all that. The reason I'm following Jesus is because I saw him die, and I saw him alive, and I 
went into the streets of Jerusalem to say, God has done something among us. For the first 300 years, the debate centered on an event, not a book. Real. In other words, now I want, you, I want to give you some context here. Because again, I don't want you to think that these people aren't believers, they're not Christians. They are. But it's a compromise. Okay? The context of what Andy Stanley is saying is this. We don't need science. Science doesn't do any. All you need to believe is in the resurrection. You don't even need the Bible. Because you see, science has shown that the Bible isn't scientifically accurate. So you can't trust that part. All you need to trust is the resurrection. The very fact that Jesus rose from the dead is all people need to know to believe in Jesus. Now, I understand what he's saying. He's, it's a knee-jerk reaction, in a sense, to what culture is, what, what's going on in culture, right? Culture is out there saying, oh, your, your Bible's wrong, so what do we see? Kids believing it. So his response is to say, well, let's then nullify the science aspect. Who cares if it's billions of years old? Fine, it is what it is. Let's just deal with the spiritual. Let's leave the natural behind and just deal with the spiritual. I understand his heart is in the right spot. He's trying to bring others to Christ by saying don't worry about the science and so on. Because I know it doesn't match. It doesn't fit. I mean, there's no archaeological evidence of the Exodus. There is. There's no you know, evidence of Noah's flood. There is. So he's wrong in that. But what I'm saying is his goal, his heart is in the right spot. But his theology stinks. Look what the Bible says in Luke 16. If they hear not Moses, who wrote Genesis? Moses. If you hear not Genesis and the prophets, neither will you be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. If you can't believe Genesis, you won't believe the resurrection. But what he's saying is, all we need is to believe in the resurrection, and then you don't need to believe in Moses and the prophets. The whole full counsel of God, you're right. So we have this prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, we have Moses and the prophets. And that prophetic word is confirmed. How? In Christ Jesus. Moses and the prophets, you know what they spoke of? Jesus. You know who created everything? Jesus. It wasn't some unnatural, or I should say natural process of some singularity blowing up in a big bang and Adam's doing... No, you know what it was? God speaking things into existence. That's what it was. But again, we're seeking a platform. We're seeking the pleasures of life. We're seeking our own way, our desires, our methods, not God's. That's what I did with my brother for far too long. I went after the world's methods and what the world said I should be doing to tolerate his homosexuality. No, I should have gone with God's way right away. So which priest are you? Do you seek to please man more than God? Galatians 1.10 says, If I should seek to yet please men, I should not be a servant of Christ Jesus. Are you swayed by the culture? Do you believe things that are unbiblical because it's what everybody else believes? Well, I'm sure no, I'm glad Noah didn't do that. Are you following the attractive, cultural, relevant Adonijah? These pastors who have no foundation, who have strayed from the foundation just to be relevant? 
You know, I always thought kids talking back to their parents was wrong until I had teenagers, I've heard parents say, pastors even, right? Oh, I always thought, you know, homosexuality was wrong, but now I have a son or a brother who's a practicing homosexual, uh, homosexual, so, you know, now I think differently. Do you allow the times and the culture to determine what you believe, or do you allow Scripture to determine it? Do you know that homosexuality, I mean, I, I would have never dreamt that we would have seen so many people accept homosexuality in the church just in the last, you know, two years. It is incredible. There's a poll, and I don't have all the statistics uh, in my brain here, but it's on my computer somewhere. Do you know that, like, as of five years ago, the amount of teens at this national youth conference that believed in, that homosexuality was okay, it was, it was like 27, 30% or something, and now it's like 50% or 53, somewhere in there. It has changed drastically. Why? Has the Bible changed? Has his word changed? No. Are you willing to stand for truth and make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the common? If you have a platform, are you going to use it to speak for yourself or to speak for God? To lift up yourself or to lift up God in his word. For you to become popular, for you to make money, or to speak for God and to build the kingdom of God up. You see, it's God's brand over your brand. One of Satan's greatest and oldest tricks is to always have you pointing at others that are, you know, sinning and doing other things wrong and whatnot, rather than looking inward. You know, the Bible talks about it, and it's misused, you know, the whole idea, you know, you know, how dare you judge me? You know, the Bible says, thou shalt not judge. Right? How many times have we heard that? You know what? It doesn't say that. Put the context in there and look at what John says. Judge righteously. You are to judge God commands you to judge. But we have allowed the culture to make us say, oh, yeah, you were not supposed to judge. The Bible says you are. There's so many things that we have allowed the culture to make us, allow us to believe. You know, I've used this example all the time. I know I've done it here before, but if you haven't heard me speak before, I use the example of sports building character. Does sports build character? Not at all. If it did, the NFL and the NBA would be the most character-filled people in our country. The Word of God builds character. But you see, you've allowed culture to make you believe something, rather than letting God's Word. That's why, since God's Word builds character, it's usually Christians, either Christian athletes that have character. Last thing, boldness without brokenness makes a bully. That's huge, guys, and I'll tell you something. That's something I have to pray about a lot. I can stand up here and be bold and say, this is what the Word of God says. But if I haven't been first broken and have compassion and love, I am nothing but a sounding gong. I don't want to be a bully. I want you to know that I fall. I make mistakes all the time. But I also know that I am a forgiven saint in Christ Jesus. I have been made holy by the blood of the Lamb only. And it is because of that that I can be bold. Because of His grace and His mercy to me, I can be bold. But we need to make sure that we have been broken so that we're not a bully. That we have compassion towards these people. I know Andy Stanley is not the enemy. Pat Robertson is not the enemy. John Piper, not the enemy. I believe they are brothers in Christ. 
And so what I need to do is I need to pray for them because my heart breaks. They have a platform. I need to pray for them. We need to hold these people accountable. We need to be a father, but we do it in love. What kind of father would I be if I let my children do whatever they wanted? I wouldn't be a good father, would I? And so I'm not going to sit back and quietly, because maybe some of you were offended by me, saying, well, I like him. Don't knock him. I love them. But I'm going to be a father. And I'm going to discipline. But I'm still going to love them. So keep that in mind.